Good everybody. Uh, my name's Joe Cartwright. I'm in the Earth Science Department and I hope you're going to be a kinder audience than the last audience that I spoke to on this subject in Swansea about six months ago when I had about 50 anti-fracking demonstrators throwing things at me. And so please, keep all those bits and pieces they've given you for free. Keep those to yourselves. <laughs> um, fracking has aroused many strong emotions and one of the reasons I like to talk about it is I think there's an awful lot of misinformation out there about the scale of the resource, how easy it is to extract it, what fracking is, how dangerous it is. And the internet is the main culprit because, as you know, it's not really policed. And so anybody can say anything and uh, um, facts can be distorted, facts can be overlooked. And people often look at the internet as their first source of information in small communities that may be feeling a bit threatened by what might happen with shale gas. So one of my objects really is to demystify um, the whole process, um, a little bit about shale gas in a global perspective, but focus mainly on fracking itself. It's an onomatopoeic word, I think, and that's the problem. And when you listen to Radio 4, it's always prefaced with the controversial fracking technique. Uh, it's always got that um, adjective... Um, it's actually called artificial stimulation in the industry. And I think it's a great shame that somehow that word artificial stimulation has been substituted with fracking. Because I don't think newspaper headlines would have been anything like as dramatic if we'd have had the controversial artificial stimulation technique. Um, so... This slide just uh, sets the scene, really, on one of the, the themes of my presentation, which is there's a contradictory evidence. So, uh, Daily Mail, no aspersions being cast, um, was happily predicting a gold mine for Britain, a new North Sea, £1.5 trillion worth. And so, that was part of the hype last year. It reached its sort of, I think it reached its peak last year when there was a uh, a, a sort of parallel discussion in the media about energy prices. So you can have the two hand in hand, the gold mine lying out there in wait for you, and that will help offset the pain. It's just not going to happen, unfortunately. And it's actually very difficult to explore for and extract shale gas. And um, Shell here, uh, in that report from the Financial Times, the former um, Shell chairman, Peter Vosa expresses his regrets at a huge bet that Shell made a little bit late after the smaller companies in North America had ploughed in and extracted most of the good licences. And they've spent an absolute fortune trying to find and extract shale gas, and it's not exactly worked, uh, as he announced himself. So not easy, and the majors are having big problems trying to make any money. And in fact, not many companies are making any money out of this in North America um, the depressed gas price, of course, largely to blame for that. But we've got our insatiable demand for our standard of living. And what's worse, uh, lots of people in very poor countries around the world look at us and would like to emulate our standard of living. And um, I say that tongue-in-cheek, of course, because they have every right to have a longer life expectancy. Our life expectancy has been built on fossil fuels, so it's one of those paradoxes of the modern times that um, protests can arise about our use of fossil fuels, whilst at the same time 
our entire developing uh, standard of living is based on a fossil fuel-driven economy. And that's very much portrayed in this graph, which shows world energy consumption predicted into the future from 2010 by fuel type. I'm not sure if you'll be able to see the pointer, but you can see coal and liquids meeting each other at the top of the table, natural gas, all of them increasing at slightly different rates, renewables um, chugging, chugging away at the bottom there, um, second on the list above nuclear, and not for any sinister reason other than it takes about 30 years to take any new development, a new technology, bring it to market efficiently. And that's the case with renewables. It's going to take an awfully long time to get efficiencies up to the, to the state where um, global energy demand will be even a third met by re- renewables. And probably by 2050, maybe on a, about 50% ranking with oil. So if you look at oil and natural gas combined, by far and away, the greatest slug of our energy requirements will be met still by hydrocarbons well on into the middle part of this century. Uh, And that's driven by demand. So how are we going to find all of these hydrocarbons? Because if we don't, we will not be able to meet the energy demand, and that will lead to major ramifications of a geopolitical nature. The bulk of the hydrocarbons, of course, sit here in the Middle East and in Russia. Uh, About 80% of global hydrocarbon resources in those two areas combined, um, which influences the world massively, as we've seen in recent years. So along comes shale gas to explode onto the world energy scene as a potential saver, a geopolitical shifter. Uh, It's had huge impact in the US, obviously, on gas prices. That's had knock-on effects with things like coal prices and coal-burning activity in Germany. They've shut down their nuclear power stations stations and built coal because they can get cheap coal from the US. Um, So shale gas is is already changing things and will continue to change things, but perhaps not to the degree that these big red bulls and those numbers suggest. These were uh, numbers from the uh, Institute of Energy in the United States in 2010, Um, And those clearly show that there's very large potential in shale gas. These are technically recoverable resources, which means the um, predicted amount that you can get out, assuming a a certain recovery factor. So they're not proven. Trillion cubic feet is the standard kind of term for uh, describing gas resources. Um, And... At the bottom there, our own British Geological Survey did a major survey of the resources in the north of England um, and came up with those numbers, low, mid and high figures. And the press mainly and the government largely ran with the higher figure. But those figures are the total amount of gas in place, not recoverable reserves. And nobody knows what small fraction, and it will be a small fraction, maybe 1%, maybe 10% of those figures would be producible. And then nobody knows whether what proportion of that resource would actually be economically producible because economics and theoretical production values are two different things. Well, the UK is not the US. Um, There's a number of myths. 
there's a sort of an assumption that somehow the shale gas revolution in the US is going to wing its way over here, a bit like the old um, Second World War. Um, I've forgotten it, actually. Does anybody remember that one, the Yanks coming over here and um, oversexed? Over here, overpaid and oversexed. I mean, there's an equivalent, I'm sure, that you could come up with for shale gas. Um, We have plenty of shale in the UK. This map shows um, a rather misleading uh, picture. It's the surface geological map of, um, I would say, the southern part of uh, Great Britain, and it shows in those different colours the different aged formations, geological formations, that have substantial amounts of shale. Uh, forming their component parts. But it by no means paints a picture of where the shale that might be prospective for shale gas is distributed. And has, by itself, and being published in front pages of national newspapers, has led some people in some communities to feel that they're sitting on a shale gas nightmare that's about to unfold, when clearly there's no prospect at all from that map of going to any shale gas exploration. So maps are misleading. Um, In the United States, the areas covered by shale gas exploration amount to about a third or even slightly higher of the land surface area of the 48 states. They're truly enormous areas that are under production. Um, And by comparison, you can see I've plotted at the relevant scale the UK map. So that's the the first point. We are tiny compared to the US. Just a single region in Pennsylvania, the Marcellus Shale, uh, which is being actively explored for, is very, very productive, but not very economically viable, um, is an area that far exceeds the total surface area of exposure of shales in the UK. So our economic prospects are very, very, very much smaller than in the US. Is the U.S. a transferable model? Absolutely not. Why it's worked in the U.S. is they've got hundreds, if not thousands, of rigs in every state. There's been a long tradition of drilling wells on land. Nearly every small Texan town has its own drilling company. Um, The population density and the culture are very different. It's a pioneering culture in many of these areas of exploration where there's an openness and a willingness to allow explorers in. It fits with the the mindset of being a pioneering culture and people. Um, Population density is far higher in Europe than in the US. Uh, Mineral rights laws are very different, as you'll see in a a subsequent slide. Um, Finding shale gas on somebody's land largely benefits or substantially benefits the landowner. It's not going to the state. Um, Water is a very different story in the United States. There are huge aquifers, although locally water is an issue. But most importantly, the geology is very simple. Huge laterally extensive shale formations that have very shallow dip, and that means they don't go up and down, wiggle around. You'll see an image of that shortly. Um, And furthermore, they're not very highly faulted. And geological faults are really the enemy of the explorer for shale gas, as I'll explain a little bit later. Not not entirely, but they make life a lot trickier. It makes it harder commercial proposition to exploit the shale gas that you have if you're in highly faulted terrain. And that's a cartoon of 
one of the U.S. shale basins. It's the Barnett Shale in the uh, state of Texas. And it illustrates a very simple, regionally dipping Barnet shale formation in that horrible kind of purpley-brown colour. Laterally extensive, you can see the scale. Um, the regional geology is very straightforward. Um, it's easy to predict laterally from any point that you drill down vertically. The prediction laterally, which is an important part of uh, doing the economics before you go ahead and develop a shale gas play, is very straightforward because the geology is so straightforward. And in contrast, um, our shales are highly faulted, um, very difficult to work on an outcrop. That's the Boland Shale on the right from northern England, our most prospective shale for shale gas purposes. Whereas, as you can see, a classic outcrop from West Texas, American shale gas reservoirs are beautiful, laterally extensive and shallowly dipping. And... Um, wonderful to work on as a geologist and some of our younger researchers in the department here are actively working on trying to understand the distribution of organic matter in that Eagleford shale. So lucky old American geologists, they have better outcrops, better quality seismic data which is a, a key remote sensing technique for imaging shale in the subsurface and their basic geology is more likely to lead to economic prospects in shale gas exploration. Our geology is much more complex. It's very rich. It's one of the reasons so many leading geologists in the world are from these islands. Uh, we have a great tradition in the department of training up people to go all over the world. Our field trips expose students to the wonders of British geology from Arran to Cornwall, um, from the Northwest Highlands to... Kent, and it's amazingly varied, but unfortunately that variation comes at a price, and for shale gas, the geological cross-section that you can see there illustrates the degree of faulting. So the coloured layers are the geological strata, uh, the shale gas horizon would be again this sort of brownish colour here, um, and you can see how chopped up it is on a scale of tens of kilometres. And that's a very simplified section. If we were to zoom in, we would see faults of all scales at all different spacings, from literally metres to hundreds of metres. So trying to find an unfaulted piece of ground in the subsurface, firstly, requires that you have wonderful seismic technology. And that lower diagram is an example of a seismic section. Uh, this is our principal tool for imaging the subsurface. And we have a spanking new laboratory in the department uh, specifically to try and use this kind of data. So seismic profiles are required to image the subsurface on the same principle as um, medical imaging. Um, MRI scanning, for example, is very similar technology. And you can see on that seismic image, it's quite difficult to know where all the faults are. There's lots of things that are broken up. It's a blurred image. And from that, you have to try to predict where the shale is going and how far it's been offset, how much it's been disturbed by the faulting. Let me move back to the podium so I can... So one of the big challenges for shale gas exploration is to work out exactly where the shale-bearing, shale gas-bearing strata occur. And faults really mess with that. And one of the ramifications of the difficulties in imaging faulting is that if you're drilling down and injecting fluids at high fluid pressure there's every chance, there is some chance, you can reactivate those faults 
and stimulate an earthquake. In general, they are very small magnitude earthquakes, less than about three. Um, in Blackpool, I think it was 2011, there were two small earthquakes triggered by drilling operations by the company Quadrilla. That caused drilling operations to be halted by the government and a temporary moratorium put on shale gas exploration or fracking. So that is one of the main public concerns. And my point is that more highly faulted you are, the harder it is to know how these faults will respond, the more difficult it is to predict those faults, in many cases, ahead of drilling. So that would be, I would say, one of the major factors for any regulating body is to think about how a company has assessed the probability of intersecting a fault in its drilling operations. Um, and I think the Royal Society report, which was published a couple of years ago, which led to resumption of activity, made that point very clearly. So there's been huge protests. Um, this image is just one of many that you can find on the internet. And there is also a very strong sense out there in the blogosphere that somehow nasty big oil companies are preventing investments into renewables. Well, these data, I hope, demystify that. These data are from Bruce Lavelle, who's a visiting professor in the department, former chief scientist um, of Shell. And those are figures from a, a number of sources. You can extract the same figures very easily. And they demonstrate the scale of the investment, so that's billions of US dollars on the y-axis and years on the right. And you can see the scale of the investment by upstream oil and gas, and that includes national governments, incidentally. Um, and you'll see a little bit later just how much of the oil wealth is held by uh, governments, not by private industry. Um, and they're compared with the scale of the renewables. So there's a huge investment into renewables. It's not yielding very good results because it's really challenging to produce energy using renewable sources. Unfortunately, right at the bottom is the CCS, Carbon Capture and Storage, which has received a very tiny investment, but that probably offers the greatest hope for using gas and other fossil fuels cleanly by extracting CO2 at the flue and storing it underground in geological formations. Well, one of the other, I think, more legitimate grounds for concern is the impact on the environment. So let me just pause and, and mention some of those concerns that I find when I go to village halls or other meetings. Water is the principal one. Uh, fracking operations do use a lot of water, typically something like 30 big truckloads per fracking operation. The fracking operations can take anything up to a couple of months to, from start to finish, drilling the well, and, and the fracking itself isn't um, perhaps as long as that, but the entire operation could be two to three months. And so there would be an awful lot of uh, truck movements into an area. The actual construction of the site is a couple of football pitches in area. They can be concealed very easily. Um, they can be restored after the drilling operations are complete. Production won't last for tens of years. It's probably going to be fairly short term, and then a new site will have to be developed. So if there is likely to be if there is any shale gas development in, say, Lancashire, that's the sort of site that you might have. Um, development comes at a price. You know, I'm from South Wales. Right? 
the South Wales valleys were absolutely beautiful um, 250 years ago. Uh, they're entirely scarred now, but they're already starting to come back to life in some areas. Um, incidentally, the, the house that is featured in this um, web protest document, um, this is a multimillionaire now who's living in Florida in a very large mansion. Um, somebody that I know knows him. So uh, legitimate concerns are water, transport movements, um, what you do with the water that returns to the surface, how you process it, and all of those things are covered by layers and layers of regulation. Um, but that's not to say that there won't be human error. Uh, you can regulate anything you like, as with the conventional oil industry, and there's always room for error. Ask anyone in BP, and it's cost them 40 to $50 billion. Uh, a small chain of events, largely driven by human error, and poor management practices probably, uh, the root of it, and you end up with a company-threatening um, environmental disaster. But actually, nature will take care of it very quickly. Um, what I find more concerning is the misinformation on the internet. Um, to my mind, it's, it's, it's sort of visual propaganda of a very disturbing kind, because clearly there's an agenda... Clearly, this misinforms. It's misleading. In fact, it's very, very false. So these are typical images showing a well. Um, it's deliberately unscaled, but it clearly conveys to somebody who's not privy to all the details of drilling operations and the scale of fractures, it conveys the impression that fractures themselves are perhaps a metre or so wide. If you look at the sort of things that you've got to register against trucks and surface installations, you would look at this and think of great big cavities. In fact, fractures are the thickness of a fingernail, um, the, grain, the, the diameter of a, a grain of sand. Um, they don't propagate from a depth which here looks to be 100 or 200 metres. They propagate from the borehole depth of about two to 3,000 metres, and their typical height is about 100 metres. And I'll show you some data on that from thousands of wells. So these sorts of diagrams are hugely misleading and very troubling and worrying to anyone that tries to get their source of information from these kinds of websites. Um, there are hundreds of examples. I won't dwell on them, um, but you'll see just from the, the nature of the diagram, it conveys a certain threat, um, an immediate threat to groundwater in particular, which I think is really unwarranted. I don't think there's a a single proven incident where frack itself, the fracking operation itself, has led to groundwater pollution. Failure of the cement, which is used to line the borehole, or where old wells that have not been recognised and archived properly are intersected in the operation, those have led to some polluting incidents, but of a relatively minor scale certainly not of a comparable scale to many other forms of industrial pollution. So it's amazing to me why this kind of industrial activity has attracted so much ire um, and aggression and also spread so much misinformation along the way. Even the BBC is culpable. OK, they've got a disclaimer there on the bottom left, not to scale, but does everybody look at that? That again, from its simple relationships of borehole, borehole, derrick size, that gives you the sort of idea of the scale and the depth, and it's completely misleading. 
Um, so even reputable sources have fallen prey to recycling diagrams they're probably getting off the internet as their major source. I'm not sure about that, but I wouldn't be surprised. Um, but the other side are equally culpable, and they often go the reverse, which is the obverse, I should say, really, which is to bombard the, the reader with techno babble to the extent that nobody can really make any sense of it. So uh, what I think we do need, and actually this is happening, is that governments are starting to produce websites that have easily accessible information. There's lots of outreach activities from the research community that are now starting to spread. Um, some great work's going on, and it's all taking time, whereas the misinformation groups are very quick to mobilise and populate the internet with the things that are misleading. Um, so that's enough of the intro and the ramble. Let me just give you a little bit of the flavour of the science. Uh, I'm not quite sure how to pitch this, so I'm just going to go with it and you'll throw questions at me and I can clarify anything. Um, but I'm sort of going for a sort of a, a good Oxford lay audience and I'm just going to throw as much science as I can at you in the next 20 minutes and see what happens. So conventional... Oil and gas fields are illustrated there in a geological cross-section. Fundamentally, you have a reservoir which is like a sandstone, highly porous, highly permeable, or a limestone, equally porous and permeable, whereas an unconventional hydrocarbon prospect essentially is very low permeability. That's its, its common property. And that means the flow rate of any fluid or gas through that formation is terribly, terribly slow, typically a millimetre flow per year. So you're not going to produce much gas at those sorts of flow rates. So that's where fracking has come in. Um, that fracking technology cracks open the formation and allows you to develop artificially, transiently high permeability. Um, conventional reservoirs look like this in a microscope. They're, these are the grains of sand. They look like this at outcrop. This is a sand channel. It was a former river channel. Um, the river transported sand has been deposited. It's capped by shale. This is a shale, a typical shale outcrop. Um, and this is a shale in thin section. Incredibly small pores, um, typically tens of nanometers, um, whereas the pore diameters, which is what controls permeability, pore throat diameters are typically... Um, more likely to be fractions of a millimetre, tenth of a millimetre to a hundredth of a millimetre in a sandstone. Um, methane in gas shales is stored um, both by absorption onto the mineral surfaces and as free gas. And it seems now, from looking at production data, that free gas is the main part of the resource. So a big question for scientists looking at shale gas is where is all this free gas? In very, very small pore spaces, is that where the free gas is? And in fact, this is really sort of almost nanotechnology brought into geology because we're having to develop very new imaging techniques to try and to understand um, where the gas is distributed. And these um, scanning electron microscope images or focused iron beam microscope images have revealed that there are tiny, tiny pores actually in the organic matter that fills the mineral pores. So you've got minerals, which are here. These are the clay minerals that comprise the bulk of the mineralogy of the, the solid 
framework of the shale. Um, you have cements which fill, fill the pores, and that can be calcite or quartz cements. And then you have pores in the pores, and pores in the organic matter that fills the pores. And these nanopores are, it seems, likely to be where the bulk of the gas resides. And just to zoom in a bit more, to show you the diameter of a methane molecule in comparison to the pore, you're now seeing that this is a very tiny pore ne network. And a big challenge for us scientifically is to understand how do I get this methane molecule from here through this mm, rather irregular pore network to the nearest fracture that I'm creating artificially. And that is one of the major scientific challenges facing any one of us that's looking at shale gas reserves. We don't know how that works. Um, so, fracking. It's, uh, it's very common in nature. Um, its formal term is hydraulic fracturing. Uh, it's been studied since the 1950s. The first people doing the theory of it were working on um, high-pressure water-driven fractures in ice sheets. It's also responsible for transporting magma through tens of kilometres to erupt at the surface in the form of volcanoes. Um, it just requires that the fluid pressure exceeds the confining stress. So the pressure of the fluid that's doing the fracturing needs to exceed the tensile strength of the medium plus much greater component of the resistance is the confining stress. And I've got some diagrams to explain that in a minute. So it's a, it's a confrontation, really, between rock strength, the in-situ confining stress at the great depths that we're dealing with, and the pump pressure, either natural or artificial pump pressure, depending on whether you're doing this as part of a natural experiment and you're in charge and your name's Nature, or whether you're an oil company doing this. Natural hydraulic fractures are... So, so common in, in geology. And here are some examples. You will all have seen them. Typically, if you're walking along a beach and you're looking at cliffs or at the polished surfaces of rocks on one of our wonderful coastal sections and you see mineral veins, those are fracks, natural hydraulic fractures. And here are some recognisable mineral veins. These are actually in shale gas reservoirs. So these cores are all from the Marcellus, which is a major shale gas play in the United States. And these are calcite-filled fractures that formed under extreme fluid pressures at some time at a depth of four or five kilometres in the past. And one of the things that you need to know if you're doing artificial hydraulic fracturing is the distribution of natural hydraulic fractures because having a, a fractured rock mass is very different proposition to artificial fracturing than having one that's intact. It's much easier to break open an already fractured, a pre-fractured rock mass um, than it is to create new fractures. Um, nature also gives us wonderful natural analogues for the whole fracking operation. So there's a pencil for scale. You can see a fracture filled with sand. You can just see it's kind of grainy. This is a shale. The host rock is a shale. The fracture walls are quite irregular but sort of crudely parallel they're a couple of centimetres apart, and um, it's dark because it's carrying oil. This is bitumen-saturated sand, and that sand was injected along a natural hydraulic fracture about 50 million years ago in part of California under the fluid pressure of oil. So oil migrates in the subsurface as a 
natural process of hydraulic fracturing. And it opens up shales, forces the oil through with a slurry of sand. The sand is a propent, a natural propent, so when the pressure tries to close the fracture, the pressure drop closes the fr- allows the fracture to close, the sand props the fracture open and allows oil to migrate through. And that's precisely the process that we do when or co- companies doing fracking operations do. They force the, the, the rock to break under the high fluid pressures of the, the pump and then they force through the, the fluid which carries... Uh, grains of sand or engineered um, glass spheres, a little bit of chemical mixture in there, and that's been a source of some controversy um, to reduce friction, to prevent biological action on the the sand, whilst the gas is then flowing into the well. So this is the sort of natural analogue to end all natural analogues for the fracking process. Natural fractures like that, full of sand, sandstone dikes, um, are very common in parts of the world, and we've been, as a group of researchers, to study these, to measure their dimensions. They can range from millimetres in size to tens of metres across, hundreds and thousands of metres indeed in length. Um, But these are formed under phenomenal fluid pressures that nature provides us with, truly astronomical fluid pressures, much, much greater than... Um, the fluid pressures involved in uh, artificial hydraulic fracturing. So these are sandstone intrusions, natural hydraulic fractures from California, crossing a distance of about three or 4,000 metres. Um, a zoom-up of that, it's about a metre across. It's brownish because it's carried oil and it's crossing a shale. So wonderful examples of natural hydraulic fractures. Um, In the laboratory in the department here, we study these natural hydraulic fractures to try and understand the physics behind them and also the chemistry because they're mineralised. And um, one of my postdocs, John Hooker, is a leading authority in the world on understanding the mineralisation in these natural hydraulic fractures. And um, a couple of his slides there, one from a core from Jordan and one from a core from the Marcellus Shale, showing these fractures with their mineralised fills where John then uses his different techniques to try and understand how these fractures grew. Many of these fractures have oil or bitumen associated with them, demonstrating once again that nature does what man has done um, more recently, but has been doing it for millions and millions of years. So as I've mentioned, I've already given you a kind of uh, a brief verbal view of this physics. It's pretty straightforward physics. You crank up the fluid pressure until it's greater than the confining stress and the tensile strength. That's a sort of an equation I quite like. I can, I can deal with that equation. Um, and there's a view of a well bore. And so what you do is you pump up the fluid pressure in the well bore until the, the rock breaks. And then the fracture propagates. Um, and it propagates a certain distance from the well bore as a function of the pressure, the energy in the pressure of the fluid. So you can control the distance of these fracks in the subsurface by the pump pressure. And a huge amount of work has gone on for about 50 years on trying to understand fracture dimensions as a function of pump. So it's not some random process. It's very carefully controlled uh, example of drilling technology and drilling engineering. Uh, and there's uh, two wells that give us the data to try to understand this problem. So it's not something new. Fracking has been going on for a very long time. The physics of it is very well understood and the engineering of it is very well understood. 
This confining stress may be unfamiliar to some of you. You have to picture yourself two or 3,000 metres down. You'd have the weight of the overlying rocks, but you'd also be getting crushed horizontally. And there's a simple reason for that, which is that if you press down vertically, you'll want to squeeze out. Imagine pressing on a sponge. It squeezes out. Better still, put your hand on a slab of brie the next time you buy one from the supermarket. It's a great experiment. If you squash the brie down, it squeezes out sideways. Um, If you take a brick and you press down on it, nothing happens. So rigidity, rheology, are a critical element in transferring the vertical load into the horizontal stress field. And of course, because you can't squeeze sideways, there's another piece of rock to the side of you and another one to the side of you, this confining stress simply arises as a resistance to this tendency to want to squeeze sideways. So that's the stress that fracking opposes, this horizontal confining stress. Um, Fractures then propagate through grains, and they propagate as a function of different grain sizes and rheologies. Uh, But fundamentally, the energy that we're putting in, the fluid pressure, is doing work against the rock strength, the elasticity of the rocks. It's got to force them apart uh, against gravity and against the internal friction. So um, that's, in a nutshell... The, the physics. Um, as I say, it's been studied for a long time. Do we know everything there is to know about it? Absolutely not. It's still a wonderfully rich area for researchers, and that's why we've got quite a large group here looking at it. So can I say we know all there is to, ne- to know about fracks and how they propagate? Absolutely not. There are some uncertainties, but those uncertainties don't extend to fracks coming right up to the groundwater. And I'll show you that data very shortly. Huge amount of experimental work has been carried out on, on fracking under in-situ pressure and temperature conditions um, so that we know the geometries of fracks. And these are some experimental fracks. Um, they're like petals of flowers in many cases. Irregular, branching, beautiful in their detailed morphology, actually. Um, What are we learning about fracks in the shale gas arena is largely coming from monitoring technology, where we set up a system of monitoring every time we do a frack job in a borehole. We monitor, um, selectively monitor some boreholes that are being fracked, and from that we derive a huge amount of information. So let me briefly explain that. There's a borehole that we've drilled... Um, This is another borehole that has been drilled with observational instruments. Here's a fracture that's propagating, setting off a chain of little mini-micro-earthquakes. And those spread their energy to the nearest observation well. And we record these little micro-breaks in the rock in the form of little mini-earthquake events. And these are very, very, very small magnitude. You wouldn't feel those at the surface. And that observation set is allowing us to then understand how fracks propagate. So there's a single well that's being drilled horizontally. It's turned horizontally here, a depth of about 3,000 metres. And all these dots are these micro-earthquakes. So this miraculous monitoring technology is what's shining a light on what's happening 3,000 metres down and is allowing us to compute how high the fracks propagate. So this is now a slice through one of these horizontal wells. It's actually got two sections to it, and it's fractured 
So the blue dots are the microseismic events, and those are at a scale here of about 100 metres. Sorry, the scale's not plotted on that section, but um, the height of these fracks from the borehole is no more than 100 metres. So that sort of monitoring data is very reassuring. This is actually uh, an experiment run by the Department of Energy in the United States, um, and it's replicated in thousands of wells where these fracking operations have been monitored. And here you can see more data. In this case, you can see a scale. That's 250 feet, and that's the sort of height of the fractures given by the distribution of these microseismic events. So it's wonderful technology. I think it's brilliant to monitor these things. It's very reassuring, and it allows us to compile data over thousands of wells. So these are depths in feet. This is probably the most important slide I can show. If you have any worries about fracking, this is a phenomenal piece of work by Norm Warpinski in the United States, reported in, in a, a web-based medium. So this is the depth. Uh, this is a cumulative plot, so this is the number of drilling operations, and there's hundreds of them that have provided the data, and it's colour-coded for area. Um, here is the groundwater depth. So in blue is the hundreds of feet down that the groundwater for those regions is. And you can see the dimensions of the fracks given by the upper and lower line. So the typical dimensions of all these individual fracks some of the larger ones are perhaps getting on for 1,000 feet, but the typical uh, dimensions vertically are about 300 feet or 100 metres. Just one more bit of data. This is the Marcellus in Pennsylvania. Once again, you can see individual fracks sometimes get up to be about 1,500 feet, but nowhere getting anywhere remotely close to the groundwater table. So that should be very reassuring. Um, that basically the depth at which fracking operations occur and the height of all of these frack jobs that have been observed, thousands and thousands of them, there's a huge, great big slug of rock that goes from the top of the frack, the shallowest frack, to the sh deepest part of the groundwater. It's a huge zone of separation. Well, I'm not wanting to chew up too much question and answer time, so let me work towards a close now in the next few minutes. Um, one of the things that's really made it work in the United States is seismic data, and that's my particular speciality. Um, seismic imaging is, is incredible. It's like having a Hubble telescope that we can turn downwards. And what this allows you to do is to image certain parts of the subsurface in gory detail. The colour there is a sort of a slice through the subsurface, through a, a shale gas reservoir. And the red parts are the hot spots where the physical properties of the shale are being converted into a seismically observable parameter that we then process the data for. And this is called sweet spotting. You need to drill these red blobs because this is remotely sensed data, but this kind of drilling validated seismic data is routinely used in the United States to improve drilling efficiency. It means you don't have to plaster an area with those horrible, ugly sites. You can choose your site very selectively based on this seismic technology. But it does require that you set a survey line going every 25 metres. And there won't be many parts of the UK where this kind of 3D seismic will be easy to acquire. But if you can acquire it, it has a fantastic 
um, benefit and it reduces the surface footprint of the whole shale gas exploration game. Well, let me finish with, uh, I suppose, going back to my roots, really, because as I've said, I'm South Walian. Um, and you grow up there and you can't help but be aware of coal. And uh, one of the most compelling arguments I've heard uh, about shale gas and why we should be doing it is to displace coal from the global energy mix. Um, does anybody have any idea how many coal miners died in China last year? Would somebody like to throw out a number? Yeah. 6,000. Very close. At least 8 or 10 new coal-fired power stations in China also. Yeah, yeah. I'm not picking on China, um, but... Uh, because if you went back 100 years, it wasn't so great. The HSE record in the UK wasn't particularly good. Um, but it's not, a, it's not a healthy industry. Um, it's not healthy for the, the planet. Um, and yet there's not much of an opposition movement to the coal industry. Um, here's the really numbing one. We can't use all these fossil fuels. We're going to be six or seven degrees warmer if we use all these fossil fuels. So we have to make choices, and we haven't got a, a global government to make those choices for us. So that's the value of people power, which I'm a big fan of. Um, so where are these resources, these fossil fuels? Well, you can see that oil and gas, it's largely government. Um, there's a bigger chunk of coal that lies in the private sector, and that's food for thought. I mean... It's also worth noting that whatever you do in the way of lobbying private um, oil and gas companies is going to have absolutely zero effect on the vast bulk of the fossil fuel reserves uh, which reside. I think it's something like 88% reside with national governments. So those are salutary points. Um, yeah, this is a bit sort of romantic. Sorry about this. But I had to throw this in. Um, it comes at a price, coal. Um, there you can see the sort of human endeavour involved. It's very hard working in thin coal seams, even with mechanisation. It's very dangerous. This is one of the shots that you know, I grew up with. I remember the day when my primary school teacher announced, it was about 9.40 in the morning, he announced what had happened, and he was white as a sheet. And it, you know, it had a big impact on many kids around the country, particularly in South Wales. Horrible, horrible thing. Um, and then last year, when I was doing this talk in the energy... Um, society for, for the students. It happened to be bang on the 100th anniversary of Senghenith, which was Britain's worst coal mine disaster. And I think I've made my point, really. So uh, what are we going to do then? Well, I think shale gas is really good. It's going to be very difficult. I don't think there's going to be much in Britain that will be economically viable, not in the foreseeable future. That may change 10 or 20 years down the line. Um, you can't make predictions long-range into the future in oil and gas, um, but challenging, engineering, geologically, geophysically, socially, it will be incredibly challenging anywhere in Europe to do it. It's not particularly good geologically. The best bits of the world have already been carpeted with boreholes, and that's the United States. Everywhere else, um, perhaps with the exception of the Middle East and Russia, unfortunately, uh, are looking increasingly like they are much more geologically challenging than we at first thought or energy agencies predicted. So as we get more information, we find it's getting harder and harder to do this very well. So there's a big challenge there for researchers, 
in engineering and physical science research to try and improve efficiency of exploration campaigns and reduce the environmental footprint at the same time. But I do believe that it's a good industry to support in a research sense because it could help us displace coal, which I think is not so good. That's my personal view. As I mentioned at the start, these are very personal views. Um, what we need to do, therefore, in Britain or anywhere else, is to try to reduce the, the visual footprint, the environmental footprint, the impact on groundwater extraction use, uh, and all those things need to be done by uh, multidisciplinary approaches where everybody's talking to each other, but not throwing cheap shots at each other. It needs to be very constructive. Um, British shale gas revolution, the dream is still there but it could be a few years in its realisation. Thank you very much.